Welcome to episode 14 of the Give Us Time podcast, the podcast that highlights the extraordinary members of our armed forces and their families. We have a fantastic guest today. He spent 16 years in the military, starting his career in the Royal Engineers before going on to pass Special Forces selection and becoming one of the first army soldiers to join the Special Boat Service. After leaving the military, he went on to become a double world record holder. He cycled the entire 14,000 mile length of the Pan American Highway, the longest measurable road in the world. In doing so, he became the fastest person to cycle the length of South America and completed the fastest cycle journey of the Pan American Highway, smashing the former world record by 17 days <laughs> and becoming the first person ever to make the journey in under 100 days. So we are honoured to welcome Dean Stop to the podcast. Dean, thank you so much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And uh, joining me, as always, is Give Us Time Ambassador Scotty Derrick. How are you doing? And Give Us Time Managing Director Rupert Forrest. Hello. So, uh, Dean, just to start off, what was it like growing up, you know, as a kid? Because you were born into a military family, is that right? So what was that like? Yeah, yeah, known as a pad's brat. Uh, so very much born, born into, that into that lifestyle. So, um, yeah, so obviously it wasn't strange for us as a family to, you know, by the time we've established ourselves in a new surroundings, start packing up again and then move to another, another location. So... Uh, very much Very almost much. A, a pilgrim from a young age. The um, I grew up in a town called Oldershot, which at the time was the home of the British Army. So it wasn't strange to see everyone walking around town in uniforms, seeing different cap badges, um, you know, different types of uniforms. Obviously, at the time in the 80s was airborne heavy. You had two para there, you had three para there, nine squadron, seven RHA. And so, you know, when you look up in the sky, you would see the Red Devils. They would take off from my school playing field and some, some you know, stragglers would end up sometimes in the playground. You had the, the balloon, which was the, the famous balloon for the young paras that they jump out. So very much immersed in that environment. But it wasn't something I wanted to pursue myself at the time. You know, although I was surrounded by that, it wasn't forced down my neck that I had to, you know, continue tradition as in my family. Um, so, yeah, no, it was it was nice being in that, that environment. And as I said, every three years you got to see different areas. You know, we were fortunate to go to Germany. My sister was born in Germany, actually. Um, and we ended up in Bradford. My dad ended up helping out at a TA unit there and then, you know, back down to Aldershot again. So what made you then want to go and join the military? And what influence did, did your dad have on you going and joining? Yeah, so I actually, uh, I, I giggle, uh, <laughs> uh, I, I actually always wanted to be a fireman, you know, growing up. My, my, father, my father transitioned out the military uh, when I was about 13, so we sort of left that military environment behind us and uh, went into, the, into a little village in, in Surrey. So I left the military behind, I was now working, uh, sorry, living within the civilian community. So I think that was something my father wanted us to do when when he got out he wanted to almost you know st step away from that so i didn't really then have any aspirations of the military it was always the fire brigade and my, my dad was very old school he was a sergeant major a scotsman uh, from montrose uh you know fair but fair but firm as a lot of his friends would say so you know growing up i wasn't allowed out to play sport unless i'd done all my homework he was very conscious that you know we, we we got good grades and i think obviously then no no one in our family had gone on to college or, or university so i think he had 
he had a vision and a plan for me. When I left school, I, I went to college. I started doing that. But um, I then went down to Newquay on a, on a summer holiday. Um, growing up, my father used to always take us down to Cornwall on our summer holidays and we used to go surfing. So that was where my, my first love from the water came from. So me and my friends went down uh, for a two-week holiday. Mine, mine ended up being six months. I, I didn't come home. Um, <laughs> my father, long before mobile phones, my father then came looking for me. Um, and yeah, to say he wasn't pleased was, <laughs> was an understatement. And, and so, you know, I thought there's no point in getting into an argument with him. And, you know, he said, well, what are you going to do now? You've wasted your education. Um, and at the time to be a fireman, I was still 17, you know, minimum age was 18. So I couldn't do that anyway. And there was a big recession back in the early nineties. We're talking 1993 when I left school. So it was like, 2,000 applicants for one job within Surrey, so, uh, Surrey Fire Brigade. So you need to obviously, your CV needs to be um, standing out. So mine mine wasn't at that age. So I told him I would join the military. Uh, it was almost a throwaway comment to, to silence him. And, um, you know, I, you know I, I, I giggled. You know, I was expecting some warm, comforting words, you know, and, and advice. Instead, I was met with, I would last two minutes, uh, which probably wasn't. <laughs> Wasn't the response I was expecting, but you know, at 65 kilos and about five foot seven, I could probably see where he was coming from at the time. But first, what I did, got home, and then on the Monday morning, went to Oldershot. My father was working in Oldershot, and he just pointed me in the directions of the careers office, which was only about 400 meters from his office anyway. Um, and as you know, with these careers offices, they tend to be, you tend to go in with an idea of joining the Navy, the Air Force or the Army, and then it's whoever's behind the desk will try and poach you for their own unit. Um, <laughs> uh, so, uh, so yeah, I, I came out joining the parachute regiment and um, my father's like, ah, you bloody not. And he marched me straight back in. I'm, um, I'm actually chuckling because I was listening to that and, and also I've got your book, Dean, and it's fantastic. Yeah. And the way he said it, he said, well, I went home and... You know, I told him I was joining, and then yeah. he marched you back down the years. <laughs> back in again. Oh, it made me laugh. Yeah, so, the, you know, but I, but I wasn't, my, my father in the military, you know, had a, a great career, but his was very much, we called tracksuit soldier. He was very sports orientated. So he was the army football manager, player and coach. So I very rarely saw him in green kit. It was always, always uh, football boots and, and trainers. So he hadn't really... I wasn't aware, although I was immersed in that environment, I wasn't aware about the structure of the military, you know, where the parachute regiment sat within within the military, what the Royal Engineers actually did. And, you know, nine squadron, which are the airborne engineers, which would support, at the time, five airborne brigade, um, which is now 16 air assault. So I wasn't aware of any of that. So he sat me down and, you know, told me about this. And he said, well, you can go nine squadron, which is airborne engineers. You can go five nine commando. And he goes... You can even go recce troop, which is commando, dagger and wings. And I thought, OK, you know, didn't really take on board. But I could see that he knew he wanted me to get as much as I could out of the military. Um, I think at the time he was probably thinking I was going to do about three years minimum service, you know, so at least get a trade or, or something. And, and so that's what I did. I joined the Royal Engineers and did my little test. In, you know, it was a touchscreen test at the time to see how how intelligent you were. And I, I know I passed all that and I could choose any trade and I decided to go bomb disposal because I thought it sounded quite sexy. And uh, my dad's like, again, <laughs> again, he just marched me straight back over to the careers office. And, you know, so he was, he was almost at the beginning, just 
carving my my path on on, on what I could get most from from the military. Um, so yeah, that that's uh, that's how I ended up in the military. It wasn't something as a young boy that had been my aspirations. Or you know, yeah. I, I, I met guys later on on special forces selection, and since young boys. All they've ever wanted to do is be a parachute regiment or Royal Marines and SBS or SAS. You know, that wasn't me. Yes. Yeah. How did you find um, training then, going in then? Because you, you, you were 16 years old, 17 years old. And yeah. How, how did you fare in training then? Yeah, it was, you know, I think training, whether you, you go in Royal Engineers, whether you go in Royal Marines, Air Force or Navy, it's going to be a culture shock um, from, from what you used to. Obviously, not so much as a cold shock as nowadays because we didn't have technology uh, and things like that. But my my father, it was all about first impressions. You know, I had to be, um, I had to be at Basingbourne uh, training establishment on the Sunday, and all I'd ever known of Basingbourne was what I'd seen on Full Metal Jacket. You know, actually, me and my my civvy mates watched that uh, the night before I went off, which probably wasn't the best movie to watch. Before <laughs> you going off, and then. Um, I, I, you know, my, my father, he packed my bag the day before. It was all about first impressions. He, he packed it all, all neatly. And I thought, well, I can do that. But I, I, I now know why why he was doing it. I mean, you had to parade between 8 o'clock in the morning and 5 in the evening. My dad had me there at 5 to 8 in the morning. I was like, really? Um, <laughs> I, 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 I you know, personally, I thought he just wanted me out of the house. He literally had me out as soon as he could. But now, now as a, a soldier myself and an instructor, I could see what he was trying to do and um, basically get you on on a good footing as, as you go off but i was i touched on it about being about 65 kilo and five foot seven you know we did the basic training then went on to continuation training in the engineers and i soon started growing quite quickly i don't know if it's because you got three good square meals a day and, and you, you're training but um it wasn't long before i started putting on weight and, and growing and as each time as i each time uh, one of the training uh, modules, I was getting confident in my physical ability uh, as well as my mental ability. And it was almost, well, what, what's next? You know what I mean? And I had always had a competitive streak in me, my dad being army football manager and things like that. So, you know, I, I had that uh, already instilled in me. Um, I never sort of showed it in front of anyone else. It was more of a personal thing. I used to always... Know, see someone on a BFT and sort of you know target them or, or whatever so it was something I had naturally already Im embedded. Oh fantastic so after going and passing training where was your first deployment to? Um, well my first posting was actually to a engineer regiment which is in Germany so my, my father touched on was the army football manager um, for UK but then you had at the time BAOR British Army over the Rhine so you had your army football champions here in the UK I mean you had your army football champions in Germany and I think it wasn't long I was trying to <clears throat> I was trying to hide the fact that my dad was in the engineers you know I was trying to keep <laughs> A low profile, which didn't last long, actually. When I was doing basic training, the 10 weeks basic training, um, I think on week five or six, you have to write a letter home to your parents, inviting them to the passing out parade. So I, I did that. And then <laughs> a week later, all I heard was Scott, you know, from the, um, oh, from no. the main, from the main <laughs> And it was the, the core staff sergeant and the, the corporals. And my dad, my father had got a British Empire medal. So he replied on his letter 
D, Mr. D stop B E M R E. We were all engineers. I was like, oh my God. So I ran straight <laughs> down the corridor and they're like, oh, why didn't you tell us your father was in the engineers? I was like, oh, you didn't ask. And then it then, it then became apparent that one of the corporals actually got jailed by my father when he was in basic training. So <clears throat> the next four weeks, I was in the press up position. But um, obviously, that exposed me that I was Dave Stott's son. And when I went to continuation training where they do the postings that said, you're, you're off to Germany, the 2A Engineer Regiment, which was the amphibious engineers, uh, were the army football champions uh, in, in Germany. So I, uh, so that's where I found myself on my, my first, my first posting. Uh, it didn't, I, I was very fortunate to go there, get quickly go on my PTI course as a young soldier and, and work in the gym, but soon saw myself following my father's, path and uh, decided to do change and go to 5-9 commando oh absolutely so how so after doing all that then how long were you in the royal engineers then before you decided to do special forces selection yeah so i i joined in in 95 and i went on selection uh, in 2005 uh, so about 10 years i had done selection uh, three weeks previous three years previous sorry and, and got injured mm. uh, so i did i did 10 years there you, the first year was training um, the second year was i was in germany and then i was very fortunate to spend eight years within 59 commando um, mm. i got to 59 commando and then less than a year was in recce troop was there like an elite uh, reconnaissance troop, which is the one my father talked about back in Oldershot about where you can get your, your wings and your dagger. And normally you, you would get posted every three years so that you could progress in your career, you know, get diversity, understand the, the, the bigger picture of the, of the military. But I was, because I, when I went recce troop, it was classed as a posting after a year from 5'9". And then I got I then two years later became an instructor on the All Arms Commander course. That was classed as a post in three years. So I managed to spend eight years there and seven years within within recce troop. And my 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 sergeant major pulled me in. Is that right? You you now have to you have to leave to progress in your career. So I had put <clears throat> my paperwork in for Pathfinders, which was the uh, the airborne reconnaissance troop. But Glasgow, who do Manning, uh, had different ideas. I I just passed my my diving supervisors course um, and they said you're going to the defense diving school as the senior diving instructor so I'd managed to go from sapper to sergeant in recce troop you know and I then moved on as a, as a sergeant to go to school oh brilliant well I'm going to ask it I know what the answer is going to be but how did you how did you find special forces selection easy or hard <laughs> um a, mix, a mixture of, of, of both it's all about um mindset you know and having the right approach you know <clears throat> the um I, I mentioned i'd done selection before three years before and i i got injured on that so what they then introduced during that period during that three-year period a lot of guys um used to come down on selection so selection for listeners whether you're sas or sbs is, is the same course it's not separate anymore it's a uk SF selection, it's joint. But before that, a lot of guys would come down and they they weren't fully aware of what was involved on selection, you know, physically, mentally, admin-wise, navigation-wise. So a lot of them would would find out the hard way and 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 lose a life. You know, they, they wouldn't they wouldn't be successful. But you only have two opportunities on selection. And so that meant they only had one more 
opportunity left. So they then introduced a thing called, um, oh, what's it called now? It's, uh, oh, it's, it's gone to me. But basically, it's a week. I will come back to me in a minute. I'll remember it in a minute. But it's basically a week with the SPS or a week with the SES, depending which direction you're going. And then on there, you have, um, you do a bit of physical activity, you do a bit of navigational map training. So they, they then have an, an idea of where you are fitness wise, you know, military wise, uh, your capabilities before selection. And if, if you're good, they say, right, you, you can go on, on, the, on the next course. If not, they then advise you what courses to go on. So you're not losing uh, lives and things like that. So when I went on, on selection the second time, I, I did I did, it's called a briefing course, that was it. So I did the briefing course with the SBS, and then a week later I did the briefing course with the SES as well. So I, I did both of them and passed them <clears throat> uh, with no issues at all. So I knew physically I, I, I was ready ready to go. So selection for me was fine. You know, I, I generally believe that anyone can pass selection with the right mindset and also staying away from injury. You know, 50% of it is injury. I, I knew that I had a, had a knee injury from my first selection. Um, I, I snapped my ankle twice playing football. So, you know, that was my nemesis. So I would always make sure that that, that was protected. And, um, yeah, I got through the hills phase, which is, which is quite arduous, um, which, which annoys me because it's just called the aptitude. The instructors don't even know your name until you've finished. You, finished <laughs> you, you think you met, had a great achievement passing, passing the hills, and it's like, right, selection starts from now. But it is, it's nothing, everyone has this vision that it's, you know, do triple backward somersaults like ninjas and things like that. And, and it's not, it's actually just basic soldiering done well. They're not asking anything that you, you don't know before. Um, obviously, you get introduced to different weapon systems and communications kit. But I really, I really enjoyed it. You know, the jungle for me was, was great. I you know some people find it claustrophobic, but I, I, I love, I love wildlife. So for me to be in the jungle was, was was great, and yeah, very fortunate to 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 pass. You know, you come out of the jungle, and the instructors have their their face to face. You know, decide who's passed or failed, and you still don't know. You have to wait another five days. So it's oh. a lot of it's a lot of mind games. A lot of guys self critiquing. You know, some guys may have been given the nod by the instructors. Some guys may not, and it's just and and I think that's all part of part of selection but I was comfortable I knew I'd given it my all so I, I you know without sounding arrogant I, I, I had a, an idea I'd passed you can so, sound arrogant I think you can yeah, sound arrogant yeah. <laughs> I, I would I'd be like yep yeah <laughs> but um and, and what was that like then Dean did you have to once you were getting uh was it the command officer from pool I take it then for you um SBS did he just invite you in the office and handed Barry no, staple so belt or was it just a handshake no, so what it is, is selection is six months long. So you start with the hills phase, which is about four weeks. Um, you then have the, the officers then go away, do officers week, while the rest of us do section attacks and um, some live firing. So everything's live firing. We don't do blanks. Everything from that, that day on is live. Um, but because you've got new weapon systems, you're having to learn all that. I mean, also you're doing uh sop training for the next two weeks before you go to to the jungle and jungle from the time you leave hereford and come back it's about six weeks you have 28 days solid in the jungle uh, and then come home so that's that takes you to the three month period it's then when they do the, the cult it's then when they say whether you've passed or not but if you've passed it means that 
they want you. You know, the next three months you can only fail yourself. So, and that's when, that. yeah, that's, yeah, that's when lads start growing their hair and things like that. Which for me, I was absolutely frustrated with because <laughs> ten years previous, when I did have hair, I was trying to grow it, and now I just look, you know, I would look like Terry Nutkins if I did that. So I, <laughs> so so then the next three months. You, you then do all your continue, you do your para course, your, your survival evasion, resistance extraction, communications training, counterterrorism. And that's, you know, that's three months. And you just, um, once you've finished that, then the SAS guys, we used to go to their sergeant's mess. They would be presented to Berry and Belt. And we had to wait until we went to pool on the Monday to then, to then get ours. But for us, we then continue. We have a three-month continuation training. We then got to do our diving and our, our boat course. So it's about nine months in all. Oh, absolutely fantastic. I mean, you must have felt, I mean, on top of the world, I mean, going and passing that. It does seem like it's, um, you know, don't want to, you know, big it up too much, but, you you, you know, only the best of the best go and pass that. You do, um, yeah. You feel like you're on top of the world on the, on the Friday. The lads get their belt. Because it is, it's important for those that are on the course. But then... When you go to the unit on Monday, you then soon realise, you know, they, they welcome you in. We go to the frog bar, we have a few drinks and, and the lads will in, welcome you in. But then it's, it's back to work. You then realise, actually, you're at the start point within the SF community. You now can slot in the teams, but you need to build on that. And then I, I then realised when I was in the SBS that you used to forget about selection. You know, when you're in the military, selection is a huge thing. But when you're in special forces, it's like... Or how many lads have passed, and, and 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 that was it. So yeah, so your bubble burst quite quickly. You you then become uh, the the new boy, and and for <laughs> me as well, you, you lose your rank. So I went on selection as sergeant, and then I start as a trooper. So I lose you lose everything. Uh, you yeah. start over again, which isn't a bad thing. Less responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always um, a bonus. Obviously, you know we can't talk about what you went and did while you were in the. Um, SBS. Um, so going and moving forward to um, your injury, which sadly resulted in you having to go and leave. Um, do you yeah. mind telling us a little bit of, you know, um, how that happened? Yeah, yeah, of course, Ken. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I was very fortunate to join, you know, going out too many details, join yeah, Special Forces at the height of the war and terror. You know, it was the busiest time in UK Special Forces history. So um, for me, I was... You know, I was fortunate to join at that period and get real exposure of of everything and all the capabilities of UK Special Forces. And we're very, very quickly soon ticking all the boxes, you know, um, which I always say these kids nowadays play Call of Duty. You know, we were doing this day in, day out. So I was about to go back out on another tour <clears throat> to Afghanistan on pre-deployment training. And we do our pre-deployment training in, in Oman. Um, great training area there because obviously it replicates the heat. Uh, you've got the mobility, you've got the air and, and everything else. So we were doing, um, again, we're talking about the new boys. The new boys had just joined the squadron. So they had to get hey-ho trained, high altitude, high opening trained. We were already trained anyway from our previous tours. And so the Sergeant Major said, well, look, the rest of you guys just go up and do fun jumps. You know, I love, I love parachuting, but, you know, in the military, I don't think there's anything, no such thing as a fun jump. Um, so I would... We went up and jumped, and I'd, uh, I'd already done a couple of jumps that day. And one thing I like to do, I, I tried to get myself to the front, and then we do what's called a frog. So you exit the aircraft, and then you turn back towards the PGI with, with your hands in the air, and almost like a frog. 
And it's like a, one of our signature jumps, which really upsets the RAF parachute jump instructor. So, um, yeah, I got, I got moved to the middle of the stick for the next jump. And um, I'd done hundreds of these jumps before, exited the aircraft. But straight away, I knew there was a problem. You know, I was supposed to be going that way and looking towards the, the rest of the team. Instead, I was on my back looking up in the sky and my leg was caught in the lines above my head. So unlike... Um, was that free, static line, Dean? Or was this, it? I was just about, yeah, unlike yeah. free fall where you're clear of lines, this is a static line. So you exit at 15,000 feet and then the, the parachute opens and then you travel up to uh, 50 kilometers or 30 minutes to your target area. So it's a, a method of insertion. <clears throat> so... My worry was to, uh, to get my leg clear in time before the parachute opened. Um, I couldn't clear it in time, and it, when it did open, it pulled my leg up over even further and to the right. Now, thankfully, my my heel got clear of the line, and it didn't take my leg completely off. But but straight away, you know, the pain. I knew there was a problem. And at fifteen thousand feet, you're on the limits of oxygen. So I was vomiting. I was also drifting in and out of consciousness because of the pain, but no one else in the team was aware that there was a situation there. So for me, I had to stay with the team and get to the DZ and, and then sort of assess my, my situation. So I'm, I'm looking down at the GPS. I'm covered in vomit and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to deal with this pain. I'm trying to ease the pressure off my harness on my, on my leg. Um, but I just approached, I watched the other parachutists, their approaches, you know, saw which was successful and which weren't too successful. And uh, now I came in and I landed one-legged, you know, it was a great, it was a great landing. Um, but unfortunately, the damage sustained on the exit um, ended short in my career. So I tore, I tore my ACL, my MCL and lateral meniscus within the knee, my hamstring, my calf and my quadricep. So all the supporting muscles as well that, that, that went with it. Uh, so, yeah, unfortunately, I didn't go on that tour and I didn't go on any tours again after that. I mean, how do you overcome that psychological hit of um, of going from that, of going from where you were at to then a transition of then leaving the military? Yeah, I think I think for me, you know, if anyone that, and I'd done 16 years in the military at that point. You know, for, for me, I was alive. I was def definitely a 22 and, you know, and I saw a career beyond that <clears throat> within the special forces. Um, so I hadn't looked at Civvy Street. Civvy Street wasn't an option for me at the time. The, you know, normally people, when they get to the end of their careers or decide that they're leaving, would, would have that transition period that they can do their resettlement courses and, and get themselves ready. I, I, again, I didn't really have, have much of that. It was flash to bang and, and, and you're out. So mm. thankfully me, my wife's very entrepreneurial. You know, she sort of, managed all those sort of civilian admin things that for me I, I wasn't aware of but um yeah at the time you know in reflection going back what it was was a an identity crisis you've gone from being in a tight-knit unit having a role and a purpose day in day out knowing what you're doing for the next two years really yeah. um to now where do i fit in society um so yeah, so that that was difficult for me, but I think again on reflection, I do a lot with the transition with the military. Um, one thing I picked up that was quite early actually, and I think my wife was very good on that. And I was very, I did it myself. I I I blamed the civilian community, you know, for not understanding me or who I was or, or what I did. And I was like, oh, you know, they're always late. You know, they don't understand me, blah blah. Uh, when in fact, actually, there's nothing wrong 
with the civilian community at all. It's ours in the military that are unique. We're the ones that are slightly different. And we, we no, we, you don't need to fit into our world. We need to somehow fit in, in into your world. And I think it's where a lot of people sort of run into run into problems on that. But yeah, I, I got I got out and about sounding like Liam Neeson. People with our skill sets, you know, natural progression was the private security industry, and and so that's what I did. I I, I got embedded in into that into that area. Um, I didn't work for any company. I did a lot of ad hoc work myself, and for me that that and that was a great time as well. I was actually learning a lot more about the cultures, about the politics, stuff that you wouldn't really see in the military. You know, I mean, you, you had an obje- a mission and an objective. You had an idea of, of what was going on, but I was seeing it firsthand uh, from a, a separate set of eyes as well and not governed by certain rules of engagement or, or governments as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Scotty, you went into the kind of um, private security kind of sector as well when you went and left. Obviously, Scotty, you left for a different reason. Yeah, I, I left in 2004 after I did my uh, close protection course in yeah. Rona in South Africa. And oh, yeah. then came out for that and then got a wee um, nice job in London, just looking after a high-profile businessman for a while. And then yeah. I got an opportunity to go out and look after the British ambassador in Saudi. So, oh, yeah. Yeah, uh, so William Patey. So I went out there for about a year and a bit, looked after him and his family and the compound and stuff. But... It's um, you're right. You can pick up more of the culture, the more of the. You can actually get a better sense when you've actually got your boots on the ground and actually living with the guys. Um, yeah. And I was working with the Saudi CP team as well, so it was um, it was very good. Pick pick up yeah. a lot of information, lot of information. Yeah, well, I know that I know that UKSF. You know, we we sometimes use private security XSF guys uh, for int on the ground. You know, for me, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to do your Afghan Iraqs. I didn't want to do work with these big security companies and do six weeks on six weeks off a lot of my friends were had set their own companies off up on the east you know because east east coast of africa the piracy was at, at its peak at this point so so for me it was it was more corporate close protection that's how i uh, how i originally was was going to get into it you know i helped set up the british embassy in well the diffid project with the british embassy in benghazi you know with oh, wow. leaving the military so that was in the height of the Arab Spring, so I was working there, and you know, soon identified the Libyans didn't want it being another Afghan and Iraq um, when Gaddafi had fallen. But also, these larger security companies were charging you know a lot of money, you know, seven, six, six to seven figures for crisis management evacuation plans. So I was still trying to find a niche within the industry. You know, I, my wife had set up our company, and you know, a very one-man band uh, doing ad hoc. Um, and so that, that's what I did. I, I I saw an opportunity with these crisis management. So I bought, bought 30 weapons off the black market in Libya and I buried them between Tunis and Egypt uh, and just buried comms kit, money and, and weapons. And I spent a month in the desert designing my own evacuation plans. And living in Aberdeen at the time, I managed to sell it. To Something similar. Something yeah. similar. <laughs> Very hot, sandy. Managed yeah. To sell, yeah, managed to sell it to a couple of the oil, oil companies. Um, and just sat on it um, and then each time I, I did a, um, a job it was ad hoc you know so it would be each each task was different you know when you tell people in the security industry I think you think you're a doorman from Club Tropicana you know it, it, every every job is different you know we we'd have I know I went out to Kurdistan and trained train their, their special forces your next phone call you're taking the UA royal family 
super yacht from Barcelona to Maldives. You know, next phone call, you're recovering the World Cup in, in Brazil. So I was gathering, I was getting so much experience and knowledge um, and doing some really sensitive jobs, more, probably something more sensitive than I was actually when I was in, in, in the Special Forces. And I just finished London Olympics. I was in Benghazi the evening that the American ambassador got killed and um, I got a phone call if I could help KCA Deutag, German oil company, get eight of their engineers safely back to, to Tripoli, which I did through safe houses. And then because of the success of that, two years later, I got a phone call from the Canadian embassy that they were stuck in Libya and needed assistance uh, getting out. So I single-handedly evacuated the Canadian embassy out of Libya, 18 military and four diplomats. Um, so, so I'd now found my my purpose within the security industry. I'd now you know, got my name to the top of the pile um, within that. But that, again, was, wasn't, I never had to touch any of my weapons. They're all still in position in situ if needed. It was all understanding demographics, the politics, the tribal influences, and something that's something I picked up from the special forces. Everyone has this perception of, of offensive action, which is 25% of what we do. But 50% of what we do, which you don't see on the movies, is is actually being embedded with locals and understanding the uh, the atmospherics and, and the ground picture. And, that, and that's what it was. Yeah. So moving um, on from a very you know high intensity lifestyle, um, mm. what then made you want to go and cycle <laughs> for 14,000 miles? <laughs> um, um, what made nothing. you... Yeah, it's apparently the shop most days. <laughs> what, what was it? Was it? Um, yeah. I mean, Mike, there's two questions there. What made you want to do it, and how did you find it again? <laughs> yeah, so so for me, my I came back from that that trip to the Canadian embassy. My wife had highlighted I'd only been home 21 days in a 365 day calendar. So. Again, this was when the, the second pin dropped for me. I hadn't come to terms with the fact that I'd left the Special Forces. I was still trying to match that adrenaline rush. And so something had to change. You know, in my book, we're at chapter 16 now. It's called Dead or Divorced. Um, if I carried on doing what I was doing, I'd either be dead or divorced. And so, uh, so my wife was a property developer. And she said, well, you don't need to be going out taking these risks anymore. You know, she could very much support the family. Um, and so that's what I did. I, I hung up my security boots and stayed home. My injured leg now was two kilos lighter than my good leg. It's about five years since the injury. Um, so I just bought a push bike from Amazon, just cycled uh, from the office about eight miles to the office. I bought a cycle across because of the potholes in Aberdeen. It wasn't a nice yeah. road bike. And, uh, but straight away, just being active again, I felt a lot a huge weight off my shoulder. It was nice to be be physically active. Considering my time in the military, I got to the position where I was because my physical robustness, I'd sort of lost that with my injury. I couldn't even run anymore. So it was nice being physically active. You can imagine my backstory. I sat in these meetings with my wife, with these architects and planners. You know, I wasn't really interested. In fact, I was actually my son. My my son was born, so I was the one. Feeding him with feeding him with a bottle of milk while my wife was doing all the work. <laughs> yeah. I was that really have I, I ended up in this position? So my wife could see right. You need to do something. Um, so I always fancied doing a wheel record. I didn't know what in, but um, about a year, it, was, it was a month before my fortieth birthday. So I was getting ground rush of being a middle aged man. <laughs> so I um, so I said, well, cycling. You know, cycling. Are we do. I knew I had the endurance. 
I knew I had the, the mental capacity. I just needed to transfer that into a, a new sport. And I knew that the cycling wasn't going to affect my, my knees. So, so that's what I did. My wife then found the world's longest road, um, which is 14,000 miles. So it's equivalent, because of the curvature of the earth, it's equivalent of cycling from London to Sydney and oh. then another 4,000 miles on top of that. Yeah, oh. yeah it's t- both top of the earth to the bottom of the earth. Um, it's 15 Land's End John O'Groats back to back. So I thought, perfect, you know, quite arrogant of me. I, having only cycled 20 miles, I applied for that world record and, and Guinness came back and six weeks later said you've been successful on that um so yeah that that's, that's how i sort of, sort of ended up in that in that position oh was, wow um, i just jump in this one alex i was just obviously again i listened to your book and it's absolutely fantastic but i love that fact of when you were starting to get into your cycling and you're in scotland and you're doing bits and bobs who was the guy that said you'd be doomed remember it was a a word in there, doomed, yeah, and I, yeah, I think yeah. now, goodness me, imagine saying that to someone. <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 again, I when I started, I, did, I didn't know much about cycling, so I was buying some magazines. I mean, I read a magazine, actually, which was, uh, and, uh, and there was a guy in there who was talking about the science sport, about weight, body ratio, power, and all this stuff, stuff I wasn't really aware of. So I went down to meet them in London. And they got behind the project, um, but more fixated on they were getting their money each month rather than the, the project in hand. So I ended up, I was supposed to, so I'd met him in the September and I was supposed to start training full time from the January. So I needed to transition from what I was doing, hand that over to the wife. So in January we, we would set off. So Prince Harry and I did a promo video together on it. So that we talk about the charity that we did it for heads together. And we did that in the September as well. And he said, look, well, what training are you going to do? And I said, well, I'm going to do 50, I'm going to do Land's End John O'Groats, you know, because it's 15 back to back. And uh, he said, would I do it with some of the members in Victor's games? I said, yes, of course. So we set a, a timeline for about March, April for that. So when I got introduced as coach, you know, we, we started training. Um, and I mean, I was doing training and then he changed the training plan on the day. And I said, well, you have to give me more notice. You can't just change it from 50 miles to 100 miles because, you know, I mean, I've, I've still got the, the kids at school and things like that. You know, it's, it's, it's difference between three to four hours cycling and seven to eight at the time. So, uh, and he said, well, if we want to be ready for Land's End John O'Groats in March, you know, we, we need to get it in, otherwise we're doomed. And I was just like, ah. I said, this guy... And he, he just wasn't listening to me. And I, this guy clearly didn't understand me. So so I remember I was on a train at the time coming back from Newcastle. And I, um, so I rang my mate and I said, what are you doing next week? He said, you know, I knew he was in the security and she had a bit of time off. So he said nothing. So I then spoke to the SBS Association. They had a, they had a motorhome. And I said, right, I'm just going to do Land's End John O'Groats. And I'd only been cycling about three weeks. And, you know, and he's like, well, this guy's like, well, you're not, you're not bike fit, you know, cadence, you know, you don't know much about cycling. And I, I just ignored him anyway. And I, I did it. I did it in nine days in the middle of November, did it all completely wrong. It was freezing, um, you know, but for me, it was just to prove a point to this guy. Look, we're not doomed. If you take away all that distractions of work, business, kids and things like that, and all you've got to do is, is that, and then, and then that's what you do. And so yeah, so that's why I changed my coach. I then found a guy in Aberdeen, Ken Bryson from Total Endurance, and, and he got it. You know, never, you know, when I came in, he he never doubted it. You know, I said, well, I'm going to cycle the world's longest road. 
breaking the record. He, he never said, oh, well, you might be doomed or things like that. You know, it's all about uh, the act- this positive attitude. Positive, yeah. Um, yeah, and, and that's what yeah, I mean. I did, then I did, I then learned about cadence. I then got bike fit, which is actually your measurements to your bike, which I wasn't aware of. Um, <laughs> and then we then we did it again. We did, we, we did John O'Groats Land's End. I did it reverse uh, a few months later. Um, but that was a lot easier for me. But I understand that a lot of listeners, cyclists, it's, it's a bucket list for some. But for me, it was a training ride, and I just had to approach it as that one. Oh wow! I mean, so you've done that. You've smashed John's end. Sorry, you've smashed Land's end to John O'Groats. It was easy for you. I'm, th- I'm pretty sure it was. <laughs> and yeah, then, yeah. I mean, um, so then, how did you then get over to America then to do the um, Pan America Highway? Yeah. So obviously, during this time, I was training throughout the year. You know, I looked at the conditions that I'd be cycling through. So the Atacama Desert. It's the driest non-popular desert in the world. It's 47 degrees centigrade when I was there. So I went out to Dubai and did training out there so I could sort of replicate those, those situations. Um, you know, I went out to Thailand. My friend had a gym out there. I, I did some, you know, I mixed up my, my training really. But also during this training period, I'm also looking for sponsors and charities down in London as well. There's, there's a lot. It's a, it's a huge project. I set a target of a million pounds as well. And um so I, I, we, we got a sponsor on board, St. James's Place Wealth Management, uh, in the October. And the reason for that was that the, the campaign we were doing it for was Heads Together. It was a mental health campaign, you know, fronted by William, Harry and Kate. So that had gone live in, in uh, April 17 with the London Marathon. Of course, then a lot of people were talking about mental health. So it was just good timing with my... Mm-hmm my bike ride with them coming on board as a charity so yeah they they, they came on board um originally i was setting off on the first of march uh, but they said we've got an event at the end of january can you an annual company meeting can i guest speak in front of ten thousand at the o2 arena and i said yeah of course but for me i wasn't happy to go down to london do all the pr the launch that then go home for a couple of weeks to then fly to so spoke to my wife and the team and we were physically, I was physically ready, physically ready to go, mentally ready to go. Logistically, we, we were there. So we, I moved it forward to the 1st of February. So I said goodbye to my kids just so I was getting in the right mindset for the challenge. Um, said goodbye to my kids, uh, went down to London and we did, we did all that, the TV, the radio, the launch night. We had the, the event, the annual company meeting. And then that evening they raised 265,000 pounds and then matched it pound for pound. So before I'd even set off, we had five hundred thirty thousand uh, pounds raised. So the next morning, I then flew from Gatwick to, to set off on the on the on the challenge. It took about nearly three days to get from London to Southern Argentina. Oh, and then you started it. And <laughs> I mean, <laughs> then, yeah, then then we started. You know, the world record at the time was one hundred seventeen days. I was aiming for one hundred ten. It wasn't because I wanted to smash it by a week. It was like when I'd done the planning and, and, and uh, research, there's things that are out of control, like natural disasters, coups, you know, third-party influence as well. And also for listeners, uh, everyone else went north-south. I decided to go south-north. I just sort of spoke to the previous record holders, and all their issues were in South and Central America. So I thought I'd address those issues early, get them out of the way, and so decided to go the opposite route of everyone else but yeah it didn't come without issues you know strong winds in 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 patagonia a whole week of 40 mile an hour crosswinds you know 
I crashed my bike in Chile on day 13 into a sign. Um, sounds sounds like I was blind. I wasn't. Okay. I was, um, and then, you know, food poisoning twice in Peru. You know, got knocked off my bike in in Colombia. You know, it had its issue. Had its had had issues along the way. Yeah. So, how how many miles are you cycling a day? Was you know the average? Obviously, you know, you went and said some days were better than others. But what was the yeah. planned average? So we, we had a we had a planned average before we went went out. You know how we were going to hit the target. You know, going south north. Other than the first week, I was um, I think I was thirty nine miles behind target on the first week. My target was still a week ahead of the world record. From then on, it was always I was getting bigger numbers as we went on. The cycling in South and Central America was different from North America because security reasons and my support team and documentary a bit more risk averse. It was first light to last light. Um, but then it sort of changed then when we just got to North America because I I had another target to, to to hit, which we'll probably talk about. But in in total, it worked out. I know I completed it in ninety nine days. Um, we had five days off, three due to weather and two logistics. So it was ninety four days cycling. So it worked out if you were to do an average of one hundred forty seven miles a day. Oh, <laughs> how do you give yourself that mindset? What um, what do what were you thinking? I mean, for I don't know for any listeners here who you know are bored in lockdown and are cycling but are struggling at the moment, what advice would you go and give to them? I think for me, I, I, I it's all about you know I broke it all down. I didn't look at the fourteen thousand miles. I broke that into countries, broke it into days, and broke it in four stages. And uh, all I would do is have big breakfasts and cycle as fast as I could for two hours. I then just get off the bike. Have food and water but quite disciplined in my timings it was 30 minutes and i was back on and i wouldn't look at the next day that afternoon or the next week i'd just look at the next next two hours so for me i was in my head i was just doing four training rides a day i wasn't doing a world record but i also made sure that i hit my objectives for the day as well you know see people coming off on on their challenges saying i'm 10 miles behind today i'll catch up tomorrow but you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and you could have another bad day and then be behind so that will play with you with you mentally so i always made sure i hit my targets or was, or was ahead of targets and like i said after the first week i was 39 miles behind target but i was still a week ahead of work world record so that was the worst position i was in on on the whole challenge so i then got great tailwinds through peru and then as i was getting the bigger miles i was like ah, physically mentally getting stronger it was like well what else how how far how, mo- how much more can i do um yeah. Yeah, so yeah. in less than 150 miles at some point what was enough oh i mean you then went and smashed it completely again you broke mm. two world records um yeah. do you just quickly tell us those world records and what it was like to, to and to hear yeah. that as well so the south america world record was 58 days sorry that's mine that's right. 58 days and i did it in 48 days you know the, <laughs> So I took 10 days off that that world record, which was great as a mental boost going into the second half of the challenge. I didn't, a lot of people messaged me and said, well, that's it now, you you know, you've broken the world record. You can, you know, that wasn't, that was a brutey bonus on the way for me. That was almost like a, a tick off um, along the way. I got to North America on day 17. I was 14 days ahead. And I was like, perfect. You know, I can take a day's rest again here or there. And then my wife rang me, and told me invite to Harry and Meghan's wedding, which changed the dynamics completely of the challenge. So going in to the phone call, I was 14 days ahead. 
10 minutes later, I'm now a day behind. So I had to change the way that I cycled in North America. Um, we talked about the security in South and Central America. Majority of my cycling in North America was done at night um, when the winds had, had subsided. Um, so I had seven, no, I, 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 we had 16 mile an hour winds and tornadoes in, in, in Texas. So I was stuck for another 24 hours. So I was now two days behind. So <clears throat> I had to cycle 340 miles in the next 36 hours to miss the next weather window. So I was just playing chess with mother nature through North America. So we had 17 days planned and I cycled in 11 and a half days. And so I managed to get that time again. So, so yeah, it wasn't the original plan. And I came in in 99 days, 12 hours and 56 minutes, which was, you know, 17 days ahead of the world record. Um, but I do say, you know, if I'd known about the Royal Wedding at the beginning and, and things like that, there was also another cyclist who, who come out on social media a week before I was finishing. And he's got three other endurance world records, um, you know, sponsored by Red Bull, all these big brands. And he said that he was going to cycle it and be the first man to do it under 100 days. So, again, listening to that when I was a week outside, I, I could have been quite comfortable with my position I was in and take the world records and go to the wedding. But I was like, no, I'll, let's push it. And, and so, yeah, I came in, in under that 100 days and took that opportunity away from him. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. One of the things that I took from it, Dean, and I've actually downloaded it myself, was um, when you were chatting about the weather conditions and using some of the weather to your advantage, it was Windy TV. Windy the TV, app. yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, so confidently, I've, I've downloaded that, and I use it every time I go away in the caravan. And we were up the north uh, peninsula of um, Donegal, and we had all set up, and I had it on the iPad, Windy TV, and I put my Jeep in front of our awning because the winds were horrendous. Yeah. And then I was watching it every 10 minutes. Oh, it's moving round to about there. So I moved the Jeep again. <laughs> and everybody else is looking at me like, this guy is nuts. But the next morning, I was the only guy with a caravan in place and an awning. <laughs> So yeah. I thanks very much for that. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a great, it's a great app. You know, it gives you the strength and directions every hour. For, and, and that's what I did in, in North America. That day that I was stuck in Texas, I just, uh, Windy TV, I just put pen to paper. So, you know, so the great thing about, you know, I, I did a lot of planning and preparation before this challenge, but actually the success of the challenge was being reactive to the situation, changing the plan as it, as it, as it was changing on the ground. Oh, absolutely brilliant. Well, I'm very conscious of time, Dean. I know you've only got 10 minutes left. Um, so I'm just going to quickly ask my final question, and then I'm going to open it up to the floor. Yeah. Um, so as um, a military family charity, um, we'd just like to know, what does family mean to you? Uh, family is massive. Uh, family is a, a massive thing. You know, I talk about, I genuinely believe, you know, for me personally, you know, with this record and things, it, you know, anyone can break a world record if you have that right support network around me, you know. So for me to be able to concentrate on what I do, and I knew that I had the support of my, my wife and my kids uh, and everyone else. And so, so guys and girls in the military, you know, they go through a similar thing. So them to be able to do what they need to do, they have to have that strong support network. But it also has to be two ways as well. You know, when, you, when you're home, you know, you need to look after that, that, that family um, as well. So, so charities like yours are, are, are great for that because it's very easy to sort of like get disconnected from your your family and just be so focused on, on what you're doing so you know bringing them together and making them you know 
feel important and let them know how important they are is key. Um, so that's one thing I, I am I am conscious of as well. You know, is is that is that family bond? Oh, absolutely brilliant! Fantastic answer there. All right, lads, the floor is open to you. Throw in any questions. Yeah, I think I think the um, your wife has clearly played a uh, a major role. And I remember being told by uh, some senior officer years ago, he just went, "Listen to your wife." Yeah, and and because they know us so well, um, you know, yeah, you mentioned the time when um, uh, you were given permission to hang up your boots, as it were, yeah, and yeah. and and it's it's that sort of closeness and interdependence um i find i I think you find it the same that enables you to you know crack on because someone's going to tell you when to stop and it's going to be your other half he goes yeah "Yeah, you it's time to stop that now yeah no one no one knows you no one knows you more than more than your 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 wife and it's all about communication that's what where we realized actually it was a i've been disconnected from society i mean when we started talking then it was a you know she, she understood understood more but yeah you're right completely uh, and what did your dad make of um your transition from you know wanting to go to bomb disposal and being marched back to um to where you got to yeah so my, my father didn't see the bike ride he passed away in 2014 but he he did see me go to sbs and we we had a um we had a father's on board day where you can bring your dad into the unit he gets to shoot all right. the guns and, and and things like that and uh I, I, I was, you know, being a senior dive instructor in the army, I found myself on, on all the dive jobs and tasks and, and things like that. So on that day, I was the guy climbing up, climbing the ladder. But I remember him buying the SBS bronze statue of the, of, of the, of the, of the uh, MCT climber. But yeah, no, very, very proud he was as well. Yeah. And a, a long way from, yeah, your last two minutes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I have one other one, which was when your leg was sort of, Okay. Yeah. How, how long was that drop? How long? Uh, you, because that must have. There was nothing you could do other than yeah. focus on getting the ground and try and stay conscious. I mean, that's yeah. a hell of a long time, I think. It was thirty minutes. It's about thirty, 30 minutes. Thirty minutes in, in the air. Yeah, and obviously you can't just go with the flow. You you still need to be navigating as well. So you still need to be doing your job. And like I say, no one in, else in the team was aware there was a situation. At, at that point we we have we have voice comms but there's not really much i could tell him i could say i've got a sore leg that wasn't really going to go down well. so <laughs> i just needed to clean, let them carry on oh, <laughs> on oh. Ground. yeah scotty do you have any final questions before we shall let dean go absolutely dean i'll not keep you too long but one of the ones that i've picked up is um, the sort of motto and quote that you guys use quite a lot was the unrelenting pursuit of excellence. Yeah. And I love that. And I've kind of taken it on board myself with the stuff I've been doing, my own personal recovery journey. And again, we're talking about family network and sometimes we forget about the other half. But I think if we put that, again, unrelenting pursuit of excellence into marriage, um, every sort of aspect in life, I think that unity will be a lot, lot stronger. Um, is that something the same sort of motto you still follow to this day in all the jobs and um, uh, opportunities yeah. you have? I think it's a great ethos because you know it's not just in the military, it's not just in sport. You know, it's it's a, an ethos you can take into any anything you do, whether you work in finance, whether you're a carpenter, or, or whether, even in a marriage. You know, 
as long as you know you're giving it your 100% you do it to the best of your ability and I sort of emphasize that your ability because everyone is very quick to especially social media compare themselves with others you know what I mean and and I think that's where a lot of people sort of get caught up in that you know but as you as long as you can sleep at night knowing that you've given it your 100% then you can't ask for more oh absolutely fantastic well dean thank you so much for today this is absolutely fantastic a great Uh, podcast so glad we managed to make it happen yeah yeah i mean it's absolutely absolutely brilliant um and thank you everyone for going and listening uh make sure to follow dean on his social media and i will put um his website in the link in the description so make sure to go and click that for all his information there uh make sure to like and subscribe to all the give us time social media pages and just thank you very much for listening everyone so thank you very much